Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, a continuation of Lesson 4 on the truth of our faith, on the veneration of the Most Holy Theotokos. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our minds, the understanding of the gospel teachings. Let us also fear of thy blessed commandments, to tremble thine all kind of desires. We may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things, and well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we send up glory. Within an original Father, and Holy Good in life, creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's just talk generally for them for them before we get into the text. And this is an apologetic text. Obviously, we're focusing on the text much more specifically to the objections of those coming from outside. And, you know, that only covers a small amount, but a lot of us are coming with those kind of questions, so it's important that we cover those kind of things. But we're going to be looking, uh, before we get into that, just, you know, generally about the position, the place of the Mother of God in the church. First thing that we need to notice is that certainly in the early church, certainly for much of the first millennium, if not all the way up until the modern age, the mother of God, the place of the mother of God, the position, the veneration was never a part of the kidigma. I want to focus and stress that because today in our modern age, everything is out there. It's all out there. The icons, the, the, the whole inner life of the church is on display, which is an awful thing in many ways. You might say, well, why, Father? Because people learn about Orthodox, become Orthodox. Yes, in spite of the fact that there's no control over the church's image and what we're projecting. I mean, all of our dirty laundry, all of our sinfulness, whatever is out there because of the nature of modern uh, life and modern media. Uh, in spite of that, thanks be to God, the glory of the church shines forth in many ways in spite of the packaging and everything. Uh, I understand that. But but the, the, the fact of the matter is that the, mother, the the veneration of Mother God is something internal. It's a family affair. It has presuppositions. And it's not meant to be something that is a part of the kiddigma, the preaching. Uh, we preach Christ crucified. We preach uh, the, uh, the, the revelation of the Holy Trinity and Christ in the world. And it's very clear that that's the case. And one of the examples of that would be in the uh, tradition regarding the mother of God being the first to see our Lord after the resurrection. Now, that's not written in scripture, 
And St. Gregory Palamas has a homily showing why that's the case. And the tradition has always been that this has been the case. This is the, the and the, re the reason why St. Gregory Palamas is the reason why you won't find that in scripture or as a part of the Kirigma is because precisely because what it would do would give the impression that we have uh, we have a source that the that the unbelievers and non-orthodox would consider less less than uh, unbiased would be biased basically that's 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 to put it shortly how one of the reasons why he gives for why that has not been so obviously made evident in the scriptures the scriptures are written remember the gospel is written mainly as a catechetical tool right it's mainly written for the catechumen the the, the one who's coming and and so the pre there's already some presuppositions that when you're reading that that we're talking about those who are not initiated but are open and interested so uh it, it would have not been shared and it did was not shared with the pagans they 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 demanded them and well those who handed over the the scriptures in the third century uh when they were demanded were considered traitors they were considered uh, those who betrayed the trust so we have to keep all this in mind because uh it's not it, it's hard for us to imagine a time when that was the case but that that's the way it was understood for hundreds and hundreds of years until at least the legalization of the church in the Roman Empire, but I think really much, much later. Uh, when, of course, the whole world became, the whole world, you know, known world, the whole Roman Empire became Christian, obviously these things became common knowledge. So we had a different approach to them. But uh, the mother of God and the life of the inner life of the church is for the faithful and has presuppositions. It's important to, to, to remember that. And so the same thing with, these wonderful events, uh, we don't throw these events before the swine, the pearls before the swine, right? We don't go around necessarily using them as missionary tools. Now, if we have somebody who's weak in faith, we have somebody who needs miracles, you know, just to just to kind of tone up, you know, in terms of their, uh, their, their ability to trust, obviously we're going to share the glory of God, the, the revelation of God, the miracles of God with them. And we have here on the left, you can see on the screen, we have just quickly put together, you know, a little search here, a variety of searches. But if we do that, we can see, I mean, this is this is not sufficient, obviously, but we don't have time to, to do that. I could give you many references. But in our life, we've talked about this before, and in the church, we have so many uh, wonder-working icons, wonder-miracle-working, uh, miracle mirror-bearing icons, wonder-working icons. And we have something that uh, is important to remember the presence of the Mother of God is so felt throughout church history. People come to the church now today and they say, well, where did you get this? Where did you get this veneration of the Mother of God? Let me tell you, the Mother of God is so felt throughout church history. When you read the Synaxarian, Synaxarian is like the record of the church's uh, heroes and victors. Like if you were to go to a country and say, go to their the, the memorial memorial hall, the the Hall of Heroes, if there wasn't a thing, right? This is the Synaxarion of the church. We go there and we say, here, here are all the glories of the presence of God in the midst of the people, the, the synergy of man and God, the continuation of the incarnation. And where, who's among the first? Of course, the mother of God. So here on the left, you see just a page dedicated to the, to the, the hymn that was written essentially in thanksgiving for the protection of the mother of God of the, of the great imperial city, the great city of Constantine, Constantinople, which was the center of the Christian world, 
not just the Orthodox Eastern world, right, but the whole Christian world. Uh, and it was a center of, of, of civilization for much of the uh, first millennium and part about half of the second millennium. So we're talking about the center of the second city after Jerusalem in terms of importance in church history, if no, no doubt. Uh, so here you have an icon commemorating this in the famous hymn that we chant all over the, throughout the church's life. Many times it's chanted at the end of, after the uh, entry in divine liturgy, if you have several priests serving them, they might chant that depending on the time of the year and the feast day. Uh, of course, it's chanted on the feast day of the Akathist hymn, which is dedicated to the mother of God, the Akathist hymn, which we read in monasteries almost every day. Almost every night at Compline, we're reading this hymn, the Akathist hymn, in the Greek practice, in any case, on Mount Athos. And so uh, this is commemorating an actual event of the protection of the mother of God. Why do we end up, we're going to talk about this later, but we end up saying, you know, save us, most holy Theotokos, save us. You know, next to the, the most uh, prayer that's most said by, by all Orthodox Christians, Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Along with that, we say, well, we say one, uh, you know, one third or 30 percent or whatever of those that will say the, this is the Athenite rule. In any case, we're going to say, you know, 600 Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me with the Jesus prayer. Or we're going to say uh, 200 or three, 900 to 300, for instance, whatever it might be. And why is that? Why are we saying most holy Theotokos save us? Well, it's not just because. Uh, you know, we can present a bunch of theological reasons. There's a, practical reasons because she's done that again and again and again. So that save us, we're going to talk about this, but I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. That save us is not an eternal uh, salvation, which is only given in Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily, we're not talking about that directly. It's not as if she's a mediatrist. We condemn that and you'll see that's not an Orthodox teaching. She's not on the par with God. God forbid. There's no created being that can be on the par with God. Everything is by grace, by His grace, including with the Mother of God. There's nothing by nature uh, that you know that would have to you have to be by nature divine and 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 and, and grace filled. Uh, so so obviously that's not the case. But but because of the practical you know uh, presence of the Mother of God throughout church history, we cry out to her. Most holy Theotokos, save us. Now, save us from misfortune, save us from trial, tribulation. Save us also from, from eternal hell. And by your intercessions, it's implied. By your prayers, by your boldness before the throne of God as the mother of God. All right, now I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's, that's, that prayer doesn't come just from uh, the Gospels, obviously, because we said that's not going to be found in the Gospels because that's an inner life of the church question. The Gospels, again, were written for the catechumens. It was written for somebody essentially outside the church. Uh, and so remember this. Put this in the right context. Understand the place of the Mother of God and always, uh, um, you know, lead with the preaching of the, of, of the God-man and uh, for the non-initiated Otherwise, you may be throwing pearls before swine, and God does not want that. God does not want that. Uh, so we're, we're forced to defend this teaching, obviously, to the world today because it's all out there, and you can't control the flow of information, and you can't. But if, if somebody begins a catechumen, they're not going to begin with the mother of God. They're not going to spend a lot of time on that inner life. They're going to talk about 
first and foremost, uh, the person of Christ and all that. And then, as we see in the icon here on the screen, the reference is always to Christ, of the mother of God. Now, of course, there are icons that do not have, she's alone, uh, and there's particular historical reasons why that's the case. But generally, this is the main icon everywhere in the church, and on, whether it's the, uh, on the right hand of the, uh, looking at the, uh, coming from the altar, on the right hand of the altar on the iconocest, you'll see this icon, the mother of God with the Lord, the directress, the directress, and we have the uh, phrase from, the, from John's gospel, whatever so, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Uh, this is the role of the mother of God, right? The, the boldness in prayer before the throne of God. Uh, so, so we need to familiarize ourselves with the history of the church and with the presence of the mother of God in the church. We need to familiarize ourselves with that. It's very important. Uh, and, and that's right. I like that what I just read here. Uh, I'm pronouncing it right. Addy. Addie O'Byrne, uh, that's right. We don't, need, we don't need to worry too much about it. The minute we enter the church and we feel the presence of God and we feel the loving presence of the mother of God and her, her motherly care for all of those, the, the, she's the mother of Christians, uh, things just take care of themselves. I think, it's, I think it's the tragedy of Protestantism is that they've thrown off so much of the gospel and so much of the inner life of the church, obviously. And so they, they feel uh, it's constantly warfare. It's constantly, you know, battle time. It's constantly protesting. And when you just put that aside, you're in and you get into the peace and quiet and protection of the church, of which she is the mother and leader and also image. Uh, in, you know, she, uh, she takes care of things. So check out the, the when you're reading the Synaxarian, you know, remember that when you're, it's so packed with meaning here that this, this, this hymn, it's so packed in Greece, it's so packed with meaning, it's so beloved and dear and important, uh, the mother of God, you will not find a saint in the church, you will not find a saint in the church who did not love the mother of God immensely and pray to her continually. That should tell you a lot. You want to be a saint. You should. You should want to be a saint. You should want to be a saint. What does it mean to be a saint? To be set apart by God, to be filled with his grace, to be holy. That's the whole point. That's why he came to the earth. That's what he's doing here. And he's working in every way to bring you and I and all of us to sanctity, holiness, to be set apart from the world and be in Him, in his grace and for him to live in us and us in him. So you want that. And we all want that. And so if that's the case, we need to imitate the saints. And you won't find a saint that doesn't love the mother of God immensely. Because how could you not? How could you not love the mother of God? It's, it's, it's unconscionable that you would not honor and love she who made our salvation possible by cooperating with the grace of God. By cooperating with the grace of God. Right? The church has set aside, as, as uh, Anastasia here reminds me, it's a good time to say it. Church is set aside four fasts and feasts, major feasts during the year, right? We have, of course, Pen uh, we have uh, Pascha, which is the greatest feast, Pentecost, uh, the Nativity, uh, and, and then we also have the, the great feast of the uh, Holy Apostles. 
And uh, and then we have another witness here by Anastasia. She said she was a Baptist. She became Orthodox. Her spiritual father said that, you know, uh, I would grow to love her, especially during the Dormition Fest. And he was correct. Such love from her, such a like, oh, you know, I read this and I want to cry because I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing with us. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing with us. <laughs> Jared. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. But let's, let's not let's not go to Antifa tonight. It's all right. We, we get enough of them on the news. <clears throat> uh, yeah, there you go. Nicholas, the same thing. So, um, but we have the four major fasts. Of course, one of them is dedicated to the Mother of God on the 15th of August, <clears throat> Mission Fast, 15 days of fasting for the Mother of God. And we have so many feast days dedicated to the Mother of God. So she's everywhere. And that's right and true. Now, what, what is really going on here with a lot of the Protestants and those who are coming to the church and have problems is that they're reacting against the, the, the distortion of the Mother of God, unfortunately, again, uh, in and among papal Protestants. And that's why I've, uh, let me go to these now, that's why I have uh, posted to you, uh, first of all, I posted the reading material, you can see that on the screen now, you should have that, you can download that, it's in two parts. Uh, and uh, so you have what you're looking on the screen you can download. But I posted this. I love this little uh, picture of St. John. <laughs> He's so unique in the history of the church. So uh, so so disarming. And uh, so we have this here. You can actually have the whole text online. I don't know if I should do that because it's copywritten. But in any case, you can have, they have they've uploaded the whole book. And you can also find this, this chapel, Zeal Not According to Knowledge, this chapter, uh, Zeal Not According to Knowledge, and he goes through the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Now, there's some misunderstanding. I don't know how this ever happened. That the, somebody wrote me early and said, the Orthodox accept the Immaculate Conception, don't they? No, absolutely not. This is a total innovation, post-schism post Western innovation, a departure from orth the common faith of the, of the church for a thousand years, for 2,000 years in the Orthodox Church. And as one who will learn if they do a little research, it probably has a lot to do, mainly to do with the, uh, the distorted understanding of original sin to begin with. That's why they feel the need to have her without any sin from the moment of birth. But as St. John says, and why am I bringing this up right now? Because a lot of what's going on, a lot of the answers that, that the elder Cleopa has to give is because of the distortion that was created in the West and therefore rejected by many Protestants. So we have this, again, we have this debate going on between Reformed Protestants and Papal Protestants, and the Orthodox Church gets sucked into it and has to give an answer. And it's never been a part of her problematic. It's never been something she has to, she had to deal with internally. It's not an issue. And uh, tragically, you can find examples in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century where the Orthodox are essentially, because for a lack of, for lack of need and a lack of understanding, they're taking either from the Protestants to answer the Roman Catholics or the, or the, Roman, or the papal Protestants to answer the Reformed Protestants. So they're borrowing arguments against, or you know, for whatever whatever we're dealing with, uh, and 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 it takes a long time for us to to just say, wait a minute, no, 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 that paradigm, that that whole discussion doesn't really make any sense because look, you're in a different realm here. You're 
you're, you're starting from a different place. We're, we're not in that. We're not in that whole discussion because it's not, it's got the wrong presuppositions. And, and one of them is the original sin doctrine, which is, which is, which different, is different, uh, differs uh, importantly, in, at least in expression and, 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 and approach, the way we think about it from the Orthodox doctrine, the Patricia doctrine of ancestral sin. And yes, I will suggest and I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to say that there are some people who have thrown the baby out with the bathwater in terms of Father John Romanides. Father John Romanides has, like everybody today, let's be honest and humble, has his issues. Fine. So what? I got issues. You got issues. We got blind spots. Nobody's perfect. And if you're not a saint glorified and deified, you're going to, and even they make mistakes, they're human, you're going to make mistakes. So what do we do? Throw them all out. Throw them out because he's 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 a call, he's a whatever. No, you discern what's you, you struggle to discern with everybody today. I mean, Metropolitan John of Pergamon, one of the major sources of innovation in terms of our ecclesiology, nonetheless began with a tremendous text. Well, a tremendous, an important text in the 1960s. It was a PhD thesis on the ecclesiology of the ancient church. Now, even there, people are now finding issues, but there are good things in there. You can go in, you can mine that, you can find some really important things. And at the time, nobody considered him to be off the rails. But, you know, 40, 50 years later, things change. We all uh, can go off the rails. What, what's my point is that Romanides comes and he, he's got a text, which was his PhD thesis, Ancestral Sin, defended with much uh, trouble because of the Latinization of Orthodox theology in the first half, in Greece in the first half of the 20th century. And it probably goes back much further, but because we don't have a lot of academic theology in Greece, uh, you know, really kind of takes off in the 20th century. And when people are going and learning in Germany, God have mercy. How many of my professors actually went to, to, to Lutheran and, and papal schools in Germany to, to, you know, get their PhD because there was no, uh, it was considered, you know, very, very poor in the 60s and 70s. Greek higher education was just starting in, in earnest. So you got you to gotta understand history. You got to understand history in the church. You're not going to understand all these debates and all these things going on. You're, you're not, you're not going to understand why people end up what they're doing. And you got to be compassionate and merciful and say, okay, we're, we're in these end times and there are people struggling hard to to get back, at, you know, not get back, but get into, because it's never been lost, get into the flow of tradition and holy tradition, of course, is the life of the Holy Spirit. So Father John Romini has a text, Ancestral Sin, which I think is a fantastic text, an important text. I don't think we can, anybody can say easily, let's throw it out. Although, I, amazingly so, I've seen some traditional people suggest that. No. That is, that is a, a monument of 20th century Orthodox theology in terms of uh, getting back to the patristic vision. I don't think, uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear somebody object, but in any case, so he shows, and the Orthodox show that there's some major differences. And so they, they, these things are created within papal Protestantism, Reformed Protestants rejected, and, and then we have to answer for it, as I was saying. Um, so you see now in, in some of the bold, bold sections here that I've done in the text, uh, St. John of Shanghai and San Francisco, Zeal Not According to Knowledge, chapter 6 in his book, just to quote a few things, to put things into context for us when we're talking about the Mother of God, where do these ideas come from that, that are being rejected in the West? 
Well, <clears throat> as he says, uh, none of the ancient fathers say that God in miraculous fashion purified the Virgin Mary while yet in the womb. The Immaculate Conception, that's, that's the Immaculate People, Some people think, oh, the Immaculate Conception, that means the Immaculate Conception of Christ in the womb of the Mother of God. No, 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 we're talking about the Mother of God's Conception in the womb of her mother, Anna. Okay, that's, that's the, the argument has to do with the, the Immaculate Conception of the Mother of God in the, so this is the idea that she was never, ever, from the moment of conception, in any way connected with sin or fallenness of humanity, and that's not the teaching of the church. Many directly indicate that the Virgin Mary, just as all men, endured a battle with sinfulness, but was victorious over temptations. It was saved by her divine son. Some people talk about it when the incarnation happened, that we have this overshadowing, obviously, and this, this total uh, sanctification of the Mother of God, of course, with the incarnation. Um, we're not going to get into deep theology on the whole question of the incarnation tonight. This is an introductory course. But it's, uh, it's very interesting that they there were many in the West after the schism who, who understood that they did not they did not accept the the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Some very notable theologians, I think Aquinas was one of them. So it's amazing that they ended up receiving it later on. Uh, and then they end up going to such degrees of delusion. Unfortunately, God helped them that they're they're talking. Many are talking, and they want uh, some of the more zealous on the right want to see her as as elevated as co-redemptress, that she's an associate with our Redeemer as co-redemptress. She's given a compliment of the Holy Trinity. God forbid. I mean, she would not want this, this kind of adulation and adoration. It's, it's contrary to everything. It's veneration, not worship, right? Veneration of the Mother of God we're talking about in this class, not worship of the Mother of God. We don't worship her give as god and they this is what they're elevating her to the realm of uh equal to god essentially uh yeah so he just goes on to talk about it you can read this on your own uh essentially they've really fallen away that those those uh, those the theological streams in catholicism that want this i don't think it's universal and it's not been done but this kind of flows from the idea that she's never had sin, of course, right? I mean, who else? Don't we say there's only one without sin? Jesus Christ. Isaios, Iskirios, Jesus Christos. One is holy, one is Lord, Jesus Christ. Don't we say that? We chant that. It's a basic teaching of the church. And yet now we have somebody who never sinned, could not have sinned. And as St. John says, this is the great travesty of this doctrine that... You thinking you're exalting her, you're actually making all of her value being lost. How does he say it in the beginning of the text? Uh, let's see where he says it. They appeared, appeared a teaching which seemingly exalted highly the Virgin Mary, but in reality denied all of her virtues. Indeed. The Lord wants all of us, of course the Mother of God's a part of this, to synergy, to cooperate, to be a part of our own salvation. We have to, there has to be there. Where's the freedom of will here? Where's the freedom of will of the mother of God? If you say from her conception, she cannot and will not sin, 
then she has no virtues. In other words, she's not participating in the, in the acquisition of the virtues, in the acquisition of the spirit of the mother, of the uh, grace of God. It's all just automatic. What, how could you arrive at that teaching? It's unbelievable to me. It denies the freedom of man and it denies the, the katikona uh, that she's made in the image and likeness of God because of course God is free. So anyway, it, it, we can go on and on about this, but it's very important to understand that this teaching is far, far from orthodox soteriology uh, and, and, and is very problematic. And so if you have those kind of teachings and those kind of ideas going on in the West, during the, obviously they were present during the Reformation, almost, people were seeing the successive uh, confused temptation on the right, right? Remember we say there's always two streams here, in the royal path, <clears throat> we're walking the royal path. Well, this is a temptation on the right. We go to the extreme right out of zeal, not according to knowledge, Romans 2, 2, 10, 2, and we start teaching things that are contrary to uh, the gospel. So there you go. You can check that out and read it. I think it's well worth it. This is actually the page that you can open up and you can see the whole text there. All right, let's go back to our uh, text by Elder Cleopatra. We're going to see, we're going to have uh, some icons here on the left. Uh, Maybe we should open up. Let's see why we're. There's always so many beautiful icons. I don't know. She is quick to hear, maybe. Or the... But that there, I don't know. There you go. All right. So you've read the text. If you haven't read the text, I'm, I got it to you too late. I understand. And I uh, ask your forgiveness. One second. Let me get back to this page here and then open up this again. And uh, sorry, I cannot get back. I love the, you know, participating in your little discussion there. But if I did that, we wouldn't have a lecture. So that's not possible. All right. So we begin with the veneration, honor, uh, distinction there, right? That we're honoring or venerating the Lord. We go back to the title of the Theotokos. I mean, this is another aspect that's rather tragic. The Western world, including Many, many papal Protestants do not understand how important the term Theotokos is. God-bearer. This is a dogmatic term. It entered into the life of the church in the Third Ecumenical Council, became a dogmatic term that's, been, that's used almost universally after that throughout the whole uh, hymnography and through the dogmatic texts that were later written, including St. John of Damascus. But before that, we have, of course, St. Athanasius the Great and St. Gregory the Theologian referring to uh, the Mother of God as the Theotokos. And we have in the Third Ecumenical Council, that whole debate with Nestorius, who, 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 who refers to her as Christotokos, and of course the implication is that uh, we don't have uh, fully God. It's not fully God in the womb of the Mother of God. It's the heresy, he's, re he's rebuked, he's rejected, the Third Ecumenical Council. And that term sticks and becomes so important. <clears throat> a sign that we have a problem in the West is that it's not important. It's not understood by most Western Christians. And it's tragedy, Theotokos. That's how we refer to most holy her, most holy Theotokos, most holy birth giver or mother of God. Save us. All right. So very important. And to our theology understanding. So the elder begins answering this poor uh, seeker uh, with scripture, of course. I mean, in scripture itself testifies to the great honor and place of the mother of God. She herself testifies to her great honor. I mean, where do we see that? Where do we see that? That's, so, that's unheard of, right? Does anybody in the history of the church testify to their own honor? But here she's not, of course, glorifying herself, but she, she, the fact that she gives birth to the 
God-man. And she says, from behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. If you're not calling her blessed, you got a problem. You're not scriptural. You're not obeying God's law and word. How is it possible? And yet it is. So many, so many will not give veneration, do not have her icon, do not venerate her icon. Of course, the words that we commemorate on almost every feast day during the gospel, what are we, the words we commemorate, you remember, that's referred to here in Elder Cleopas uh, text, and that they, they came to... Uh, they came to the Lord and they said, the mother's outside. And he said, well, uh, who, is my, who, who is my mother? Who is my brethren? Everyone who does the will of God, et cetera, et cetera. And so this, this points to the spiritual, that we're spiritually uh, children and relatives, let's say, with Christ himself. And that's the most important thing. And this is somehow paraded by some Protestants who say, well, see, the Lord doesn't honor his mother. But that's exactly the reason why he does honor his mother. Because not only was he phys she physically connected, and of course he would honor his mother as his mother because it's the law of God to honor your mother and father. The Lord's not going to honor his mother. I mean, blasphemy. But we know he honors because we have so many examples in Scripture. And Elder Cleopa commemorates these examples. But how much more um, that it would be fulfilling his own law. He gave that law. So of course he's going to honor his mother. He's not dishonoring his mother by saying that. But more to the point, he's honoring his mother because she, par excellence, fulfills that as being a true spiritual relative with our Lord. So far from being a dishonor, it's actually a greater honor because she's the first of all who has fulfilled that. She's the first of all. So it's, it's tragic to see people bring such a specious, superficial argument against and actually they're self-condemned when they do that. Uh, he takes great care of her. He listens to her. He honors her throughout Scripture. The scriptural passages are there. You can see them on your own if you have issues. Um, <clears throat> and he says the same thing. Is it possible? Is it possible that he could, he could address her? And then, he, and then, and then this, this, this other argument. Well, he speaks to her disdainfully, bluntly in the Scriptures. Of course, a total misunderstanding of, of the term, uh, as, is, as is shown in the footnote here. This is not a disdainful word. Uh, woman, uh, behold thy, uh, or the, at the at the time of the crucifixion, woman, behold thy son. Or uh, when he was in the uh, wedding at, uh, in Cana in Galilee, he says, "Ti mi ke sigine." What is it to me and to thee, woman? Uh, and it's translated the King James, unfortunately, uh, as "Woman, what have I to do with thee?" I don't think that's the proper translation. I could be, could be mistaken. I think the proper translation is much closer to what is it to me and to thee, woman? Or at least uh, at this time, why are you saying let's begin the, pro the, begin the miracle working? Uh, of course, he does do that. And that's what's so interesting here. Far from disdaining his mother, he listens to her and does the miracle. So yet again, we have a very specious and superficial argument for impiety on the part of the Lord, God forbid, is blasphemy. Uh, you know, being, being rude and disdainful, I should say, or disrespectful to the mother of God. So as even on the cross, he takes care of the mother of God. Uh, another, another mis there's so many misunderstandings, unfortunately, surrounding the mother of God, and that is that uh, she was not married in the way we understand marriage. She did not have sexual relations, of course, with Joseph. Joseph was an old man. 
and he was taking care of her, and that was his role, and it was very clear and understood within Jewish society. It's uh, ahistorical and impious to hold that anything less. And the children, of course, that are referred to are Joseph's children from the previous marriage. And as St. Irenaeus expresses it, Mary, having a man betrothed to her, but nonetheless a virgin, was obedient and became to herself and to the whole human race a cause of salvation. Now, in our sexualized, insane society, we can't understand uh, how there could be a couple that doesn't have sexual relations. Well, we need to wake up and get out of our, uh, you know, delusion and, and, and beyond our, our, our limitations here and understand that. And it's not just the mother of God. Of course, there are actually many examples in church history, at least a few, of, of couples not having sexual relations and living as brother and sister and working out their salvation. St. John of Kronstadt is an example. Of course, St. John of Kronstadt lived as brother and sister with his wife and did not have children and served the church. Uh, so in any case, that's this is not the case. This is not even, there's not even that comparison between that and the mother of God. Of course, it's even different, much different. But just, just to respond to the, uh, the crazed sexualized age. Um, <clears throat> so she was overshadowed by the power of the Most High, and she conceived to give birth to the, to the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, this overshadowing is oftentimes referred to as the time when she begins to be, you know, just to so, so filled with grace uh, and so one with God in terms of his will, deified, theosis, glorified in this life. Uh, because of the presence of the incarnate word and in and through her. Of course, uh, can we doubt that this would be the case? Uh, what's really fascinating here, and I think it's great that he brings it up, is that we, the, the term woman actually brings, us, brings to mind the first gospel. If you've heard some of my, of my other lectures, I've got a lecture on this in terms of the prophecies of the Lord in the Old Testament and, and, in, and among the non-Jews. Uh, we talk a lot about that there. And it's the prophecy of the first gospel in Genesis <clears throat> when our Lord Logos, speaking to Adam and Eve and the devil, uh, and talking about what the consequences of this sin will be, he already preaches the gospel and says that the seed of the woman will uh, bruise the head right, will bruise the head of the serpent. I'm sorry, she will bruise his head and, she, and, and, and uh, he will bruise the heel of, of, of the Savior. And of course, that's referring to the crucifixion. And so right there, enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Well, her seed, the woman's seed, would not be correct because seed is referring to the man actually right the seed is from the man and uh so right there you already see the virgin birth right there the virgin birth is present it's the gospel being preached that this will happen this is it's so amazing it's so wonderful our gospel has been preached from the very beginning from the moment of the fall the gospel was preached it was all there, and they knew that, and it, and it, and that that seeped down throughout all the people of the earth when it now became differentiated, and after the flood and all that, it was all there. It was that that seed of 
the gospel about the seed went to all the world. And people were in expectation of the Messiah throughout the world. You can find that outside of the, the, the Jewish people, the people of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. You can find that everywhere. So um, this is this reference to woman brings us back to that great preaching of the first gospel. And, uh, of course, the mother of God, we believe in the church. He doesn't get into this here, but we've talked about this elsewhere. And it's uh, rather shocking to me that I've run into Orthodox Christians in Greece who do not accept the bodily uh, translation of the mother of God into heaven, which we as Orthodox Christians teach and believe Again, not in Scripture, but again, it wouldn't be in Scripture, would it? Why would it be in Scripture? Scripture, again, was not. I'm going to say this again because it's important to drive it home. Scripture was not written to expose the inner life of the church to the heathen. Scripture was not written to expose the inner life of the church to the heathen. Scripture was written as a catechumen, a text for catechumens. For those who are interested and had the presuppositions to accept it and believe in it. It's a catechetical text. And not everything is recorded as St. John in the scripture says, not everything is recorded. So, uh, and it would be impossible to record it. And he's not going to record the inner life and the family life of the people of God. It's not, it's not part of the gospel preaching. So we have this tradition coming down from the very earliest days from the apostles that the mother of God died like every other human being because she was born like every other human being. And that had to happen. That, that had to be fulfilled. But she was resurrected as the first of, the, of all resurrections. We said this before. Everyone will be resurrected. Everyone. The worst sinner. Hitler will be. You know, choose whoever you think is the worst sinner. He will be resurrected. His body and soul will be united. But not all will be resurrected unto life. Many will be, unfortunately, God help us, and may we not be among them, resurrected unto condemnation. As the Lord himself says, there's resurrection of life, there's resurrection of condemnation. So hell is being bodily and soul together, but not in communion with God. The light burning, coming down as a burning sensation because we've rejected the Lord. So uh, she, she is sitting at the right hand of our Lord, as the first fruits of salvation after the Lord, he's the first fruits, but she's the first fruits among humanity. And she has inexpressible glory. And there are many saints who testify to this in their lives. The revelation continues, the incarnation continues. We see this. We're not limited to the written text because the written text is a part of the holy tradition, which is a part of the whole life of the church. So we know this in the life of the church. It's not part of our kirigma, but we know it and we believe it. We celebrate it. So she is sitting at the right hand. Her body and soul is already there, and it's a great mystery. Don't try to figure it out. You won't understand with your logic. You have to experience it. Uh, nevertheless, consider this also. When God created Eve from the side of Adam and led her to him, and he named her woman, was Eve thus married? Or was she a virgin? Wasn't she a virgin? She was a virgin since she was created from the virginal body of Adam. This is a wonderful presentation here. This is another witness to the virgin birth for any of those who, who doubt that she was a virgin. Of course, not just 
before, not just during, but also after she was a virgin, the mother of God. Uh, so there you go. We, this We can drive that home, uh, but we don't need to. It's all right there. Uh, let's see. Time flies. I don't know how it, how it happens. I look up at the clock. It's almost an hour into this. I don't know how that happens. Uh, so Holy Scripture, he says here, does not call the mother of God a woman and thereby mean married woman, as some believe. But with the word woman reveals only her sex. She's a female of the ever-Virgin Mary, while simultaneously in a hidden and concealed manner saying that she is the woman whose seed Christ will bruise the head of the serpent, and through her shall come the salvation of mankind. Uh, and I think that's so important, right, uh, to understand. And then um, I love this quote from St. Justin Martyr. We put it in there when we did this, translated this text. We put that in. I don't think it was in the original. Anyway, St. Justin Martyr. Eve, being a virgin and incorrupt, conceived the word spoken of the serpent and brought forth disobedience and death. But Mary the virgin answered, may it be according to thy word and receive faith and grace. So, so important that those words, that context is so, so important for many reasons, dogmatically, spiritually, for all of us. We're called to imitate the mother of God. Some people put the mother of God like the papist so high, so far away from us that it, she's in another realm. And that's not right. She's not in that other. She's our mother. We're called to follow her, imitate her. As I've said before, the, the great St. Maximus says that we should become Theotoki by grace, right? We should follow her and spiritually give birth to Christ. So wonderful. Um, all right, let's keep going. There's some other things to cover here, very important. Now, we have this phrase in Scripture that's much much belied and misunderstood uh, among uh, especially English-speaking people and Protestants, and there are not a few Orthodox who don't get it, and so we have to kind of double down on this and say, what's going on here? You know in Scripture where it is said, and he knew, he knew her not until she had brought forth her first son, uh, firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. So, until she had brought forth, he knew her not. Well, does that mean afterwards there were relations? And the answer is wonderfully given here in many patristic texts. Of course not. It means eternally. Actually, it's kind of counterintuitive, I think, because we, we tend to use that in a one way in English. Until meaning up until the point, but then the implication is afterwards, but that's not the way it is in Greek. And of course, we have to look at the Greek because that's the text that we're going to be, uh, that is, that's been received and embraced and quoted from the very beginning. That's the scriptures are written in, in Greek or, or, or given to us in Greek. So it means something different. Eos ou is the Greek, right? Eos ou. Uh, Note the imperfect tense, continuous or linear action. He was not knowing or he kept on not knowing. Uh, that's from the uh, Orthodox New Testament. St. John Chrysostom says he uses the word until, not that thou shouldst suspect that afterwards he did, not, he did come to know her, but in order that thou mayest learn that before the birth the virgin was wholly untouched 
But why did he say until? Well, because it's usual in Scripture. Oftentimes we encounter this. Uh, to use this expression without reference to limited times. Uh, when discoursing also of God, Scripture says, from the age until the age thou art. Not as fixing limits in the case, obviously. Not that until, until the age thou art, but after the age thou art not. <laughs> obviously, that's absurd. So then here, it likewise, it says, use the word until to make certain what was before the birth. But as to what follows, it leaves thee to make the inference. St. John of Damascus says, while every virgin loses her virginity in bringing forth, she was a virgin before her delivery, in her delivery, a virgin after she brought forth. And, say, and the elder here gives us several examples in Scripture when we, it would be absurd to hold that afterwards something else had changed, right? So it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Obviously, afterwards he's not going to change that state, right? Same again with speaking of, about Noah. It says he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Does that mean that the raven returned at one point to the ark? No, he never returned. It says in Scripture he never returned. Again, Michael, daughter of uh, uh, Michal, daughter of Saul and wife of David, had no child unto the day of her death. Does that mean after her death she had children? Of course not. So, very important. We go to the Greek text. So important to go to the Greek text when you have these kind of issues. If you just read... The English and run with it, you're going to be confused. And that's true in any language besides Greek, right? In any language besides Greek, not just English. I actually think English presents more problems for a very variety of reasons. One of the reasons is, of course, we've had most of our translations done by those who are not of the church, and therefore the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspiration is not present fully. I mean, maybe God has condescended in his economy for the sake of salvation, but there are errors, unfortunately. And at least the, the, uh, the lack of, of the grace of the mysteries for those who were translating was not present. Uh, but also because the English language is kind of unique in the sense that it's a combination of many languages, really, right? Um, not, it's not, it's not, it's got, it doesn't have the integrity of Latin or of Greek. And so it, it does create, I think, more problems for the translator. But anyways, in any case... Um, here we talk about what I talked about earlier, the mother of God, save us. We have another hope beside thee. And of course, the rational uh, legalistic man says, whoa, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean? What do we have? We don't need no help. What are you talking about? How, could, how is that possible? With our logic, rationalism, right? But if we just settle down, have the experience of the church, understand what's going on here. This is children speaking to their mother. Save us. It's crying out to the mother, save us. You've done it so many times in church history. Save us. Uh, and that, first of all, means in this temporal life, but it also means with respect to salvation in the sense of by her intercessions, save us, right? Does not deny the Christ as the mediator at all, but we do need help for our personal salvation. That's very important, again, to understand we have the personal salvation, we have the salvation of the world. There has to be, as we said, a synergy for in our personal case, right? And so we need help. We need help. We need the help of our patron saint. 
We need help with the mother of God. We need help with the brothers and sisters in Christ. We need help with the prayers of the church, of the priest. We need help. And we cry out to all those who have help. And we know she has great, great boldness. She's at the right hand of, of Christ in heaven. She is, uh, was obedient in everything. Of course, she's going to have great boldness. Of course, we're going to call out to her. Entreat your son to save us, redeem us. That's what this means. Keep us from temptations, distress, necessity. Uh, and he says here, I think that it's very important to say, you know, when we venerate the mother of God, are we venerating just the mother of God? Or are we venerating the fact that she, uh, that she is his mother and therefore we're venerating him as well? And the fact that she has the honor is because of him. And so you cannot separate, really, the veneration. You can't talk about, I venerate Christ, but not the mother of God. You're a liar. You're deluded. There's something wrong with you. You can't say that. Because the Lord venerates and respects and honors his mother. So if you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know who you're talking about. You're not venerating the God-man, in the proper way, at least. Um so he does a summary at the end, basically restating his points. We don't need to go through them all. But I think his, his last line is, is, is instructive. So we're going we're gonna to read about that if I can get down there. All right, hang on. How can we not honor the mother of God, he says, when Scripture itself shows us that even the archangel Gabriel esteemed her as worthy of honorable veneration? We venerate her who, according to the testimonies of Scripture and of the evangelists, is full of grace. She herself says we should venerate her. Scripture tells us that all nations will bless her. All right. So there it is. Uh, now, as I said earlier, this week we were going to cover, actually, holy relics and icons. We've covered the Mother of God fairly quickly. We could go on and on and on. There's so many things. I, we could talk about what we do in church in terms of the Mother of God. We venerate her. We pray to her often. We have services written to her for asking her for her intercessions, right? We have the supplication service, the small and the great. We have the Akathis hymns. Uh, we have many supplication services because there are many, many, many instances of her, of her intervention. We have many supplication services that are to her, but essentially addressed to one of her icons. One of the most famous is this here. Uh, can you say that, see that there? I don't know how to make that bigger. Let's see if I can get that bigger. Is it going to open up for me? No. All right. So that's not very helpful. This uh, icon here is called She Who Is Quick to Hear, Gogoi Picos. It's on the monastery. It's in the monastery of Dokiriu on Mount Athos, one of the most venerated and beloved of, of all the icons that exist in the church. And what it commemorates, the icon existed. It was on the outside the the Catholicon uh, on the way to the trapeza of the monastery, uh, and it was an icon there on the wall. And the Mother of God spoke to one of the monks there. I think it had. I can't remember the story to the truth right this second, but. It was in protection, I think, of the monastery, and he rebuked, she rebuked the, the monk, and I think he went either blind or deaf. Uh, thank you, yeah, thank you. It's all right, Elias. I think you guys can see the icon. And 
it doesn't open up though it goes to this page elias yeah it doesn't help us anyway she she um and maybe you're talking about this here any case she this icon became so beloved and well known throughout the world it's been translated in english you can find that the, the i'm talking about the service the service been translated in english uh, but it is one of many 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 icons like this where there are particular services written for uh, the mother of god and then the name of the icon right and so you might say well are we praying to this inanimate object the icon no of course not. we're praying to the mother of god but with the story and the intervention and the praise of this event right so what's the it's on the occasion of the event of the intervention of the mother of god the saving or the protection or the miracle working or whatever it might be that the monks then with great devotion say this icon of she who is quick to hear they named it because of the event um this this is a special intervention of the mother of god in history and of course they're talking always about the mother of god i'm talking about some inanimate object only but through that even even through the icon we have uh, many miracles worked through by our lord uh and so we venerate the action the operation the intervention of lord of our lord in history and and so we we thank god for that right so i know that that there's similar things that superficially going on in the papal protestant latin communion and so people are saying well this reminds me of that but if you live it it's like saying you know you re you remind me of my brother a lot but you're not my brother you look just like him but you know what you're not my brother there's two different things going on let's not be confused because we have maybe something in mind that's not orthodox and we well that sounds a lot like catholicism it doesn't really matter if it sounds a lot like Catholicism. it's not the experience is very different and so one has to experience it to really understand that it's not to be you know you can just explain for every every uh, every person uh, that's the nature of things you know saint john saint john said we touched him we heard him we we saw him with our own eyes we we, we touched him with our hands this is the testimony of the apostles of the saints throughout ages and that's exactly what we're after and we have to have we're going to be able to speak from authority